Welcome to the fourth episode of Rain Race. Today I have one of my good friends, David Land, joining us. We're going to be talking about a possible new GTE manufacturer. We're going to be talking about the recent news with Global Rallycross. And we're going to round it all off with an IndyCar preview. I'm Chris Aurelio. This is Rain Race. Let's go. I'm here with the usual co-host, Mr. Kyle Cuthbertson. Sup? Traditional. Sup? Trademark. There. Also, our <laughs> um, new guest for this episode, because we're going to be doing an IndyCar uh, preview at the beginning, at the end of the episode, I should say, Mr. David Land on YouTube. What's up, guys? Uh, happy to be here. Fan of the podcast. Enjoyed listening to it. I thought you did a great job on the Dion Von Molka podcast, and uh, I'm happy to be the second guest, or the third guest, right? Second or third? Uh, Well, if well, you count Kevin, then you're the yeah. third, so... I mean, but that was kind of one Kevin. episode. I so. will count Kevin. Yeah, okay. We've, we've had a sports car enthusiast, a IMSA driver, and now an IndyCar slash IMSA, I guess, sports car enthusiast. Yes. So, But we're not just talking about IndyCar today, are we? Because we're talking, uh, uh, first off, about because there's been some talks recently uh, spiraling up in the past week or so about a new GTE. If you don't know what GTE is, it's GT Endurance. It's the ACO's um, you know, premier GT formula. Actually, really only gt formula that aco mandates um or regulates i should say um so there's been some talks recently about a new manufacturer coming in uh right now it's been a little bit unknown it's between pretty much mclaren lamborghini and toyota now i'd say that these whole things really fired up when there was a leak in a japanese magazine that said Somewhere along the lines that Toyota would be revealing the new Supra sports car in the Geneva Auto Show next week, actually. And they'd also be bringing along a Toyota GT or Toyota Supra GTE version. Now, I don't know if GTE was supposed to mean just sort of like a souped-up track version of the street Supra that they'd be, you know, selling to customers that they could bring to the track and have some fun with. Or if that legitimately means GTE um, for wec rounds and possibly imsa rounds as well uh and then sports car 365 just the other day said that mclaren has been talking up a gte program of their own with the new mclaren senna i almost want to call it a homologation special but it's not really it's just limited to 500 cars which is sort of somewhere along the lines but uh, that would be an interesting car as well so that i mean i haven't really seen much coming out of lamborghini's mouth that would be a really big surprise entry if it were to actually come out of the works for the next season. So I'd say pretty much narrowing it down to Toyota and McLaren. Uh, start off with Kyle here because I don't know how much you've read along into this because you're not as big a sports car guy as I am. But uh, what would you like to say about the possibility of either McLaren or Toyota joining the GTE ranks? Yeah, well, I've seen the uh, articles go up on Twitter a few times. Uh, yeah, I think... Right when I saw the McLaren Senna, I kind of thought it'd be a sweet GTE car. You know, that'd be sweet to see at Le Mans. That's about all I've say. Is I hope it's the McLaren, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see the Toyota. Seeing the way their LMP1 could be going in the future, maybe uh, start up a Supra program, maybe something like that. Uh, but we'll have to see. Anything's anything's possible at this point. Yes, indeed, Mr. David. What would you like to say about uh, these possibilities for a new GTE entry in the future? Possibilities uh, that are on the table right now. I think Toyota is the most credible. Uh, they are, of course, already associated with FIA WEC racing. And you would assume that this would be the program uh, that they would be talking about for the Supra. This makes me a bit nervous as a prototype fan. Uh, because of the fact that that almost makes me think LMP1 is bye-bye for Toyota. It's going to be interesting to see how the super season works with the WEC uh, and how the entries change throughout uh, this two-year process. We saw, uh, to talk, since this is kind of an IndyCar-themed show, this is kind of topical, in the first year of the IRL, they did a similar thing to what WEC is doing with their super season. They had uh, the season start at the middle part of 96 after the Indy 500, and it went all the way through to the end of 97. Uh, and what we saw was huge amounts of turnover between uh, the Las Vegas round in September 
and the Walt Disney World round in January, where, of course, the traditional sponsorship deals and uh, engine supplier deals and all that stuff expired. And all the teams had to redo their stuff midseason. So by the time you got to the next round, this championship was almost completely different. I have a feeling we're going to see that here in the WEC as well, uh, especially with Toyota. I suspect, and I think a lot of people have suspected, that if Toyota wins Le Mans in LMP1, they're gone. They're done. Uh, if they don't win, they could still be gone. However, uh, this GTE uh, rumored program with the Supra gives me the feeling that they want to stay in WEC competition, but they don't want to continue uh, developing a LMP1H car because, quite frankly, they are in a class of their own. Whether or not the ACO and the FIA decide to group all the LMP1 cars together, they're the ones with the $10 billion budget while everybody else is running around the $10 million uh, budget range. So that can just tell you how much more on a different level that Toyota program is. And you got to think that they would want to get that budget down and at the same time still have the exposure and the competition element of racing your Chevrolets, your Fords, your Porsches, and so on in the GTE class. I think that's how it will go. But I would love to be proved wrong, and Toyota will double down and have P1 cars and GTE cars because that would just make uh, the FIA series uh, even that much stronger. And, hey, bring those Toyotas to IMSA. We need more GTE cars to begin with. So I just want to backtrack you to where you said <clears throat> if they win Le Mans or even if they don't win Le Mans as a possibility, they're just done. They're out of P1H. Uh, so you're talking about Le Mans 2018 when you say that? Are you talking about after 2019, after the super season concludes, that's when they say, all right, we're pulling out of P1 and just focusing on GT? I'm talking 2018. I could see uh, doing a Corvette racing when they went from GT1 to GT2 back in the ALMS days where they go to Le Mans with the old car, uh, they take a sabbatical uh, to develop the new car, and then they come back. I suspect that if there is a Toyota GT program, we would see it debut uh, at like the spa round of 2019. I suspect Toyota will skip Sebring because Toyota always ha has hated Sebring. They never went there when they had the GT1 program, the TS-030 uh, program. Uh, for whatever reason, Toyota never wants to show up at the American rounds unless they absolutely have to. So I would suspect if we see this program, it will show up later in the super season of WEC and probably, I would guess, at Spa before Le Mans 2019. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty uh, hefty theory right there to say they just call it all ties on their uh, P1 program if they win Le Mans. But um, yeah, I guess the only time I mean, will again, tell. They're spending a lot of money. And again, we saw what Porsche did when they had a competitor. They pulled out and they're going to Formula E, which is, of course, significantly cheaper to develop a car or a power plant for that series versus an entire car for WEC. Again, I could see this happening. I've seen it before. We're kind of in the dip period in terms of uh, sports cars boom and dip. And we're in this dip period. It's going to be a changing landscape for sports cars. And I kind of see this going. Hopefully, again, Toyota at least keeps their foot in the door. But you know, I'm crossing my fingers on that one. Can you imagine if they did leave and then all this Alonzo Fuji stuff was just pointless? <laughs> well, no, because I'd imagine that they probably, I think if it did happen, it would likely happen in the big gap between pretty much the quote unquote end of the 2018 portion and beginning of 2019, where you have what, three, four, maybe even five months in between the rounds, um, where they'd really just have a big transition period to focus on a new car. I personally don't really see any credibility behind that theory i don't think it i think it's just too far out of hand honestly but if it did happen i honestly think that they just pretty much at least for the end of the 2019 portion of the super season they just transfer the same driver lineups over um or maybe at least some some of the driver lineups over while some of the other guys maybe stayed in prototype uh just to pursue further uh endeavors there or went to super formula or something like that but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I haven't heard anything along those lines quite yet, so um, it's actually something to keep in mind. We'll see how it goes down the road. Just back to what I thought, though, about McLaren versus Toyota. I don't know, because it's. I, I think Toyota has more sort of legibility behind it right now. I think that the theory has a little bit more um, 
sort of meat in the sandwich, uh, so to say. But SportsCar365 is really a trustworthy source. They've gotten a lot of predictions right before. And for them to say they believe it's going to be McLaren announcing it at Geneva next week, I don't know. I mean, it's it's pretty interesting for sure. Um, we'll have to see how that all pans out. If it did happen, though, like I said, it would be announced at Geneva next week. So for the next or no, it would be whatever, next podcast or two podcasts from now, whatever. We'll go all of, over all of that uh, whenever there's more news about it. But moving on to the next thing on the uh, this week's agenda GRC, Global Rally Cross, because if oh you boy. haven't been paying attention, um, or if you're not subscribed to David and didn't see his video about this, they kind of just, um, well, they shit the fan uh, <laughs> this week, <laughs> because, because I, I can't, honestly, because you had a fledged series with manufacturers ranging from Subaru, Ford, Honda, VW, um, you know, their cars, they looked like the road counterparts, like David said a Honda Civic that you saw in GRC looked more identical to a Honda Civic that you'd see in the showroom than say like, uh, you know, any GTE or GT three car to their, um, showroom counterparts. I honestly think that this class was, you know, the most similar to the roadworthy counterparts as you'd get. Well, except for the fact that you had four wheel drive or all wheel drive beetles, but I guess that's besides the point. Um, anyway, they, uh, announced, I believe it was either Tuesday or Wednesday. It was one of those that they're just going to end the supercars this this season. No more. Nope, none. And they're going to be replacing it with spec OMSE Fiesta-based uh, cars. Now OMSE, they're this they're the same group of people who made the Civic and the same group of people who made the um, GRC Lights cars. So basically, for this season in GRC, though you know, the flagship GRC series, not the lights, the flagship GRC series, we're going to be seeing pretty much a souped up version of what we saw in the light series. So it's going to be spec um, Fiesta looking cars with around 600 horsepower. And did they actually say anything about manufacturer bodywork for the gold class or is that just the platinum class? The platinum class. The gold class is 100% spec and... The gold class is not really going to be... It's only this year that it is considered the top class. Next year, 2019, it's going to be the platinum class that they are going to be pushing as their top category. Yeah, and this whole thing has pretty much been a uh, interpret-it-as-you-want press release game because I've read the press releases and I couldn't even tell for the platinum class whether they're going electric or not. David said he believes they are. Um, again, maybe I just didn't read far enough into it, but... I didn't see uh, you want me to explain it? That. Yeah, sure, go ahead. The Platinum class is an electric class. And in the first press release, they said that they are going to be pushing it in 2019 as the top level of the global rally cross. It's going to be a spec electric engine, but manufacturers that wish to participate can produce bodywork. So essentially silhouette cars on the same spec that doesn't sound the most exciting to me, but I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know what they're smoking. <laughs> honestly, I, I can't see where this is uh, going to make manufacturers want to invest in this. Maybe I'm stupid. You know, maybe maybe they know everything and I don't know anything. But I look at this and I look at the history of series that have done similar things to this when they have a flurry of manufacturer support. And it rarely ends very well for those series, so who knows? And here's the problem with it, um, that I was just talking to my friend Kevin, who was in the last podcast with Dion. I was talking to him earlier tonight about LMP1 Privateer, and we were saying, oh, it's going to be great next year that you got some new cars coming in. The biggest problem is that people like to follow cars that are pretty much... Uh, similar to road-going manufacturers. So I, I went to a GRC event last year. I went in Connecticut. Uh, and just the amount of people you saw there who brought their Subarus, people brought their Hondas, it was pretty much just Ricer Haven. And um, <laughs> just, just to say it in one word, or two words, I guess, uh, you had people with Subaru gear, people with Honda gear. It was just all pretty much decked out and more than you'd see it than yeah. like a GT event even. And the problem is, is that once you go to these sort of spec 
cars. People are going to be going for the drivers. And I don't really think that too many people go to GRC for the drivers as much as they do for the manufacturers that the drivers end up uh, being a part of. Maybe, maybe just maybe Tanner Faust, but that's about it. Yeah, I'd say Tanner Faust, Scott Speed, those are the two biggest guys in the series. They both ran with VW and Dreddy. And Ken Block. Well, Ken, Ken Block. Block isn't even in GRC Ken anymore. Block, he was, yeah. He's in uh, World Rallycross. There you go. He was in GRC for a while. But yeah, yeah. I guess... He might do a race or two, but he's not a full season guy. Yeah. That's the um, thing. I, th- I think a lot of these series put too much stock in their drivers. And ultimately, I think this is my personal theory on racing series is that the drivers are what make you stay, but they're not what make you come to the event. That is the event itself and the cars participating in whatever challenge you are putting on. Like the Indianapolis 500 was originally dubbed the Indianapolis 500 mile sweepstakes because at the time it was this fantastic, fabulous race where you're going to see cars pushed beyond their limits. The drivers became the stars later on once the event itself was established and the rules of such and the difficulty of winning the event uh, was established. So what essentially GRC has done here is they've essentially taken away kind of that uh, initial carrot to get the people in the door. Essentially they're saying, man, you got to come see our drivers. Well, why are we coming to see your drivers? You know, there's no connection there anymore to the everyday man, and that is where they've really screwed the pooch. Yeah, I think there's a common trend with series nowadays where they're all obsessed with close, action-packed racing. And I was talking about this on Twitter the other night, and I think it's people like me and people like David and Kyle as well that we're pretty much just a dying breed, people who like to see diversity in the cars. We go to these racing events so that we can see the variety of cars. We can see... Um, sort of just the variety of style there. That's why I love sports car racing so much because nowhere else in racing right now are you going to find that much variety throughout pretty much all the aspects of the series. Um, and once you make all the cars spec, yeah, the racing's probably going to be closer. I can guarantee you that the racing this year will be better than it was in previous years where you pretty much did have VW domination, if we're honest. But the thing is, is that I didn't mind the VW domination, all right? If they built a better formula, which they did, if they had a better car, which they did, then I don't have a problem with them dominating. I think it's that there are certain fans nowadays, and it's pretty much a majority of the fans nowadays, that when they go to a race and when they invest in a product, they want to see close racing. And, I mean, we see that nowadays. We see it with NASCAR, and we see it with the tight... Uh, regulations that a lot of series are infringing upon the manufacturers all around the world. It's, I don't know. I feel like there's kind of like a specify uh, influenza going around the racing world right now. Obviously, there are other reasons to do it. Cost cutting is one of them. But I feel like it's just there are too many series nowadays that feel like having close racing is the biggest priority on their hands. People want this close racing, and these uh, that's all they really care about. And these all the cars same, all the drivers on an equal level. Why don't you just bring back IROC? You know, there you go. <laughs> Chris, can I? Can I contest a little bit of a point that you had? Oh yeah. Uh, I, 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 you said that the people who are all 100% gung ho on spec racing are a majority. I would disagree. I think what we're dealing with here is a vocal minority, and a lot of the people who are in that vocal minority are the people who are in power in these racing series. Something that I didn't understand about Global Rallycross until I was told about it on I think it was uh, the in the uh, YouTube comments uh, I may be mistaken on that but I got this information is that the series itself is owned by the owners so essentially it's cart so you would have to think that somewhere down the line the owners running the series decided that it was in their best interest to sell to their sponsors that we can be competitive if all the cars are the same So, again, I think the amount of fans that necessarily are affected one way or the other by spec racing or not spec racing, I would say is pretty – it's a vocal minority. Certainly the people who complain or uh, are pushing for all the cars to be the same. You know, we're in a minority as well, pushing for as much diversity as possible. But I would say our minority is a higher percentage of racing fans than those who are – really, really pushing hard for spec cars. The people who are pushing for spec cars are the people, one way or another, that are paying for it because 
they feel that the only way they can sell the sponsors in this changing motorsports climate is a guarantee that A, you'll be in the race, and B, you'll be competitive. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really trying to go for that uh, direction of people or of uh, fans hoping to see a more spec class. I'm saying that I think there's a lot of fans nowadays that care about close racing and close racing the easiest way to get uh, to that goal is pretty much to make the cars as similar as possible aka just making them all the same car so i don't think that there's as many people who want all the cars to be the same as there are just people who want to see close racing i don't know that's pretty much just the way i interpret the whole situation but sure but that was my point was that a lot of people are convinced the means to the end of close racing is having the cars as similar as possible i mean brad keselowski is one of the worst at that he's constantly on twitter talking about how toyota's got an advantage and whatnot and whatnot yet ford has been the most successful manufacturer in nascar this year but who facts who needs them (laughs) (laughs) oh boy well Shall I start the hand shuffling a little bit here? Because that would actually be awesome. Do you know what time it is? Shuffle. Do you know what time it is? Oh, it's It's time for me to sit back, grab the popcorn, and listen to you two talk about IndyCar. How about you just take it away, honestly? Well, if you want to know, it's 12 a.m., kind of. If we're not even going to hide it, this is midnight, kind of. (laughs) Fairness makes no difference, as they used to say on Top Gear. Well. All right. Well, apparently you two can't just decide on a topic, so I'll just where do you want to start? I'll start the ball rolling here. Okay. All right. Scott Dixon said that the Hondas will uh, almost certainly have the advantage next or this season over the Chevys. And uh, honestly, all I can really say is that I got pretty much see what he's saying there because Honda did have a good engine formula the past few years. They just didn't have the aero package and the reason why so many hondas were blowing up last year i think is because they were really pushing them to their limits to build up from the aero deficit they had what was it like they said last year they had like 300 or something pounds less downforce at some certain road courses on the road yes. courses yeah yeah and was, the short ovals yeah i mean that's why you pretty oh i mean penske also had just had the short oval package figured out to hell but um yeah penske for sure my lord but I think that this year, the biggest difference we'll see at a track, though, is probably going to be the short ovals. And I think it's going to be a yeah. lot more tightened up between the Chevys and the Hondas because they have the same package now. But Probably uh, not Phoenix, but Iowa and Gateway. Yeah, sure. Iowa's been a little bit of a snoozer the past two years. But Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, the past two years? I'm sorry, that race has been a snoozer. Better than Phoenix. Oh, yeah. I liked it when Newgarden was lapping the field like two years ago. That was fun. That was old school. That was like funny, but yeah. But uh, anyway, back to what I was saying about Honda versus Chevy. Um, I don't know. You guys just want to give your input on that? I mean, that's what I've heard a lot about the Hondas. You know, all last year they were saying, you know, the Hondas had more torque and, you know, they were a much better engine than the Chevys. And I can kind of see how that translated to the aero kits. I kind of talked to the end of last year that, you know, Honda looks really good going into the uh, new body kits. Is equal cars no aero deficit and you know they have the better engine um i i think i've heard around too that maybe i think i heard this i correct me if i'm wrong but honda and chevy kind of came to an agreement um to kind of lay backs lately so that they can uh, focus on the next engine uh package in 2020 20, 20, 20, 2021 20, i don't know but there i think i've heard talk. that too Heard some like that. Some talk about when that is gonna. Uh, they're, they're actually talking. I've seen as early as 2020 for the next engine regulation. Yeah, but it's IndyCar, so give it like add like two years at least. And that's the thing is the chassis. They're like, well, we might stick with the DW12 for the next couple of years because the package is really working for us. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's always gets pushed back. This is just how they do things. It's kind of unfortunate. But to your point about Honda and Chevy. Certainly Honda, I think they kind of snookered everybody a little bit uh, last year when they called for the aero freeze. They took all the money they would have spent developing their aero kit and threw it right into their engine development. So like you said, that's why you saw the engines exploding. But that's also why you saw 232 mile an hour laps from at least two Honda powered cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They had a very low drag 
uh, aero kit for the super speedways. But when, again, you got on the road courses and uh, short ovals, you not only had a downforce disadvantage with that Honda kit, you had drag disadvantages. There were simply more parts you could take off of the Chevy to streamline that car uh, than the Honda. Now that everybody's got the same thing, and this is the thing I warned everybody about way back when, when they announced this, is that if you think this is necessarily going to close the competition up, I think you're a little bit mistaken, Sam. Uh, This could be a Honda route going into St. Pete and certainly at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway where the Hondas were the best car uh, every year except for 2015 when they had their really, really bad aero kit. No, no, never count out Team Penske, though. Never. The Hondas could be leading crazy, but the Penskes will still be there. We kind of saw that at Pocono. Where were it was they? obviously okay, a Pocono. Honda race, but Penske's everywhere. <laughs> it's almost hard to... Where were they? <laughs> oh, that's also true. Well, mm-hmm. I thought Power was at the front, wasn't it? Elio P2. But I would I would say that Elio, but that's Elio. I mean, that's Elio is one of the best drivers, in my opinion, that's ever driven at the Speedway in terms of just a guy who's has the tenacity to get up to the front no matter what kind of car he's in. I mean, the best his, two-time champion we have. Sure, I, I, I'll admit did, that. But did you uh, notice his little hint in there. That's what I said. <laughs> I, I acknowledged it, but I, I wasn't going to draw attention to it. Letting your viewers get We're gonna the let uh, subtlety. <laughs> 2002, if you don't know what he's on about. I think another thing to look into before this uh, season starts is the lap times. Because we talked about this back and I think it was episode one, um, about the lap times. And I said, honestly, don't expect them to be as far down at the road courses as people have been saying, because yeah, you're losing that corner speed that you've had with the arrow kit era, but you're going to have a lot more straight line speed. So I think that that's something to keep in mind. And at the ovals as well, especially maybe tracks like Texas, where you're running a lot less drag. I don't know. I mean, I think that that might be, uh, possibly some records broken at tracks like that. Well, they won't break the record at Texas. I'll guarantee you that. Uh, They are going to try to control the speeds in some ways uh, on the ovals with the strakes uh, underneath the car uh, at the diffuser level. The the more strakes they add, the more drag and downforce will be on the car. However, uh, we saw in Phoenix testing that the speeds, the lap speeds, were not that far off the track records that were established uh, last year by Elio Castroneves around the 195 range, we saw speeds uh, right about 190. So if you look at it, they've only lost five miles an hour at a track like Phoenix uh, with a significant, le- uh, significantly less amount of downforce, giving the cars that confidence in the corners. They're sliding around a lot more, the drivers have been saying. So you look at a place like Indianapolis, which is not nearly as uh, aero grip centric. Certainly, aerodynamics play a big role at Indianapolis, but it's not, you know, the corners have a much wider radius and they're taken at a much higher speed. Therefore, with less wing on your car, the car produces the same amount of downforce, if that makes any sense. So, uh, I do know that Buddy Lazier last year, and whether or not you believe his, uh, his uh, interviews are credible, I don't really give a crap. But he was saying uh, on Carb Day, I actually was lucky enough to catch an interview of his at the Chevy stage. And he said with the removal of the bumpers alone, that could add somewhere between uh, 5 to 10 miles an hour to the straight line speed. So we're talking from uh, where we saw them about 238 uh, last year heading down into Turn 1 in Indianapolis. We could see him at 243, 244, 245. And that's around a straight line speed record, which is currently officially held by uh, the Mercedes-Benz powered Penske's in 94 at 245 miles an hour. So could we see a track record? It's unlikely this year, I would say. I think the cars are still a little bit underpowered to hit that. But if we see the new engine regulations, if they provide the promised 100 to 150 horsepower more, uh, we could definitely be talking about 236, 237 mile an hour laps. I think we'll see a 234 this year. I would not be surprised. Well, also you have to remember that it is a new package and teams haven't had a ton of testing with it. They've been out testing a little bit, but 
Uh, at the beginning of the season, I don't expect to see a lot. Um, I don't really expect them to see uh, them anywhere close to what they were getting at the road courses with the arrow kits. But I think as you progress further through the season, maybe around the uh, mid-Ohio mark, maybe towards the end, that's where you'll start to see the teams picking up pace. They start to get a feel for the car. In terms of Indianapolis this year, again, I don't have much data going into this because I know just as much as you guys, which is not really much at all. But um, I, I don't know because they will have that um, straight line advantage, like you said. I don't know. It's really just hard to tell because, yeah, they have the straight line advantage, but how much are they going to lose in the turns? It's That's just the biggest question right now I have. Well, that's the thing. It, you're going to see a, gig, a significantly less distance between an aero kit car and a spec body car uh, at the ovals because of the fact that downforce is less of a key. There's less slow speed corners, uh, a lot less corners where aerodynamics can really help you get that lap time. Uh, if even you look at a high speed road course, uh, if they still went to Watkins Glen, I think you would see a less less gap between the lap times because of the fact that this car is going to be significantly faster on the straights. Uh, this car, again, makes up its distance on the straights, makes up its lap time on the straights. The aero kit cars were very much how big are your balls? Can How late can you get into that corner and how long can you keep that throttle pin? It's going to be a different style of racing uh, than we've seen in recent Indy cars. It's going to be a lot closer to what we saw, I think, with the IR05 on the uh, road courses where the cars are sliding around a lot more and there's a lot more, I guess you could say driver input. We saw some fantastic performances uh, in that era from drivers who were definitely better than their equipment and were able to drive around the car, uh, the cars, uh, I guess you could say misgivings and really put in good performances. Look at Justin Wilson when he was driving the coin cars That's then when they were, about absolutely not the best cars on the grid but on the road courses he was consistently up at the front i think you're going to see that here so we're going to see who the wankers are and who are the guys who are the true talents in the series it's going to be very interesting it's going to be a telling year that's for sure one thing that just kind of popped into my mind though is indianapolis because kind of like honestly i'm still a pretty young guy and the era where i really started getting into indycar whether this is like a a popular era to get into or not was pretty much around 2012 2013 which is when they had like the amount of passes in each race for the lead being broken um i think that was yeah 2013 where that happened i think um and so i mean i don't know they've had a little bit less on track pass like it seems like the cars lately in the aero kit era they've been able to get up alongside and then right when they get into turn one they kind of have to back off sometimes because they just couldn't complete the pass and you don't want to go too wide into the first turn as you know i'm scott dixon you know all right not scott dixon um well he kind of learned that way. but yeah uh well also i'm thinking of what was it townsend bell oh uh, uh, well, townsend and sage yeah <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah so um but anyway uh i'm Starting to wonder though, are we going to be able to see these cars completing a pass before they get into the turns again? Which, well, I mean, that's kind of the racing that I got into back in 2012-2013. When Hinch and Dixon did that test at Indy in the manufacturer testing, they said that these cars pulled up, they pulled up on each other a lot quicker than they were expecting, which surprised me. Do you think with all, a lot less aero, they it wouldn't be? Um, the slipstream wouldn't be as great as it would be with the big giant bumpers creating a hole. But from what I've heard from them, you know, and after those tests, that you know, these cars slipstream is still very there, and you know, maybe we could see some, you know, 2013. Twenty thirteen is probably the biggest example of the record broken lead changes. But then again, that type of racing, it, I don't know. I don't want to say it takes away the skill, but it does, you know. Eh, I see what just you're being saying. Able to get, well, just being able of, to get in the slipstream, get side by side, and see who has the biggest balls. I guess that's a few points I want to make yeah. on uh, what you were just talking about. Uh, I believe there were 87 lead changes in 2013. I believe that's the number, yeah. and that is easily the most lead changes ever in the history of the Indianapolis 500. The second most is something like 30. So that was a ridiculous day. You, you, you look at something like that, and, and and 2013 was kind of a perfect storm. It was a very cool day, not only helping the draft, 
but also giving the engines a lot of horsepower and a lot of grip on the surface with the you know the tire temperatures weren't getting up so tire wear wasn't really an issue all those things and of course the car the dw12 everyone discovered at the end of the 2012 race that you could just leapfrog each other the whole time and that was way more efficient yeah. than a traditional indy 500 uh this is the deal about the new aero kit uh you look at the uh the old aero kits and you were talking about wow i can't believe that they're not drafting better or you can't believe that they're drafting better now than they were then well if you look at the aero kits they had a lot of winglets and stuff all over them even yeah. if the bumpers were breaking a, a lot of the air they have those rabbit ears on the top of them so that was disturbing a lot of that air so dirty air of course means that you're not going to get as much of a draft and when you get into the corners you're not going to be able to follow as closely as you otherwise would Vinced that we're going to see uh, and honestly, I don't want to see another 2013 race. Frankly, in my opinion, it was artificial. Uh, yeah, that's and what I was saying. When, when the crowd at the Speedway stops cheering the lead changes because it's happening every yeah. lap, I think you've got a problem. Lead changes and passing, there is a point when it gets boring. And this is sounding yeah. weird to say, but it's the truth. You don't want to hotshot things. You don't want to make it so easy to pass that leading the Indy 500 doesn't matter. I think, I think what we're going to see is a style of racing where I'm hoping that the downforce is significantly less to the point where uh, drivers are not going to be able to go flat out the entire lap at Indianapolis, particularly if they're in the draft heading down into turn one. If you're at 245 miles an hour, I would certainly hope that you're not going to be able to pin the throttle through turn one because that's not going to make very good racing at all. But if people have to back out of the throttle, uh, the racing could be quite good, even if it's a bit more spaced out than we're otherwise used to. And I don't think a spaced out race is necessarily a bad thing, particularly at the Indy 500. Most of the best and most well-remembered and loved races happened in an era where three or four cars finished on the lead lap. So again, I think the Indy 500 will be fine, even if Twitter bitches about it quite a bit during yeah. the race. I think Will Power is a guy that I always look towards for the you know pack racing thing debate of uh, the artificial stuff like that you just went over. I think he's probably the best guy that I look at to talk about that. Um, I read his book, and he said you know races like that where you can just get behind someone and pass easily. You know, it it just takes no skill to do that. It doesn't. Um, you know, when exactly when taking the lead of the Indy 500 isn't a big deal anymore, it there's a point. And uh, I think I've heard a couple times Indianapolis has basically become, you know, a, I forget what they called it, a something pack race. It was like a spread out pack race, which is basically what it's become. You know, you get to the front straight, get a draft and pass. It's, it's Call it not, snake racing. Snake racing, <laughs> which... It's not as complained about like a race like Auto Club because you know you're not running four wide and like that. But still, it it does have to come a point where passing every lap isn't easy. Because you look at 2014, it was basically a crapshoot of who had the lead on the right lap, and it was happened to be Hunter A. So yeah, that's about my take on it. Teams actually is another thing we have to look at going into this season because there have been a couple of notable team changes. I say most notable. More to a prediction kind of standpoint here. Yeah, this is kind of like the uh, we have no big facts, but we're just gonna try to make assumptions, anyways. We've um, made plenty of those today. So. Oh yeah, I mean, I don't think that's gonna be any big deal. I don't think it's gonna turn anyone away at this point. But um, I say the most notable team change I've seen, at least because of, of course Borde. But I'd say um, Dale Coyne. Now that they have James Sullivan and Jimmy Vassar back on board, uh, that. You know, they got what is it now? It's like C V S H whatever they're calling it nowadays. So it's like D C S V Whatever you want to call it. I, I um <laughs> so I, I think it's great that he has them back on board. I mean, obviously he had a great season last year up until pretty much the month of May started and we just, you know, GP was bad and then uh well it just got worse from there. Um but he showed at the beginning of that season that he could get some good results down, especially at the road courses. So I think that uh, with these new additions, they could be uh, even more of a contender this year than we thought they could be last year. Um, I'm if, to... you wanna, if you want to get a good look on Bourdais for next year, 
it's going to be interesting to watch because I don't want to go, you know, uh, advertising other podcasts, but the Marshall Pruitt podcast is usually where I go for my info because it's. I don't think we have to worry podcast. about our audience being yeah, we don't have drawn to away to Marshall anyways. Pruitt, anyways. I think he just already beats us, but he 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 will always beat us no matter what. <laughs> I don't know, I, like, but still, he had the interview with Craig Hampson, and Hampson said, you know, he's uh, we've always kind of know that Bourdais is the guy that doesn't like a um, unpredictable rear end, and the, they haven't been able to find him a setup with a new car yet that can get it the way Bourdais likes it, so. It's going to be an interesting year. And plus, I hope they don't milk the Bourdais Indy story, but you know it's going to happen. Well, you know they're going to do it. They're, you have to think ABC about. He's going to do it for sure. But then you got to think. You do have to think about Bourdais and Indy, though, because Craig Hansen brought this up. You know, if you want to contend for polls at Indy, you have to run those flat out, all out balls of the wall laps. And in Bourdais, you got to think of how Bourdais is going to take this. You know, if he goes into turn two again, the car starts to lose it. Is he going to let off or is he going to keep his foot in it? You have to, you do have to think about things like that, and it's going to be interesting to see how Bourdais handles Indy this year. It's going to be interesting how he does throughout the season because I think not seeing Bourdais and how this, his championship run went throughout the year was probably one of the biggest disappointments of 2017 because he probably could have made a run with that tiny coin team, and it would have been amazing. If people want to take Bourdais and you know more broadly Dale Coyne as a team um, to be championship contenders. The biggest thing that I think they have to get down is short ovals because they proved last year they had a good road course package for um, not only Bourdais, but Ed Jones as well. He ran some good road course races last year, some great ones actually. Uh, They proved at the super speedways like Indy and Texas that they had speed. They were up front in both of those for a good portion of time. Uh, And pretty much that just leaves short ovals. They've always pretty much been, you know, a little bit of a middle of the pack team at some of the tracks like Phoenix and Iowa. Um, but those are the tracks where you have teams like Penske who are really hitting hard. And like I said, although it may be a long shot, if you even want to th- possibly think about a Dale Coyne driver winning the championship, they have to get the short ovals down. Yeah, well, the short ovals takes about three of the races, and being a Ray Hall fan the last few years, knowing the Hondas were trash, and you want to go for a title run, three races I mean, can make your can make the difference. So I guess... I guess you just got to try your best, and hopefully luck will put you in the top ten or so. I mean, running we'll out of the short ovals and getting a top ten will—that's that's those are championship runs right there. Is when you're at your worst track, you probably don't have a chance, and you can still pull a top ten run. That's that's what champions are made of. I mean, Scott Dixon proved it. Road America. So Dale Coyne short oval package. I don't really think we saw it last year. Uh, obviously, Bourdais, when he was at his strongest, was taken out on turn one, lap one at Phoenix. And guess who had a good run in that race? Ed Jones in his first o- oval race. I think he was in the top 10 most of the day. He was up in the top five for quite a bit. Now, of course, yeah. passing was nearly impossible at that point, and I think he was up there on strategy. But regardless, he's still stuck in there. Uh, we also saw a great uh, oval run in his debut uh, for Esteban Gutierrez at yeah. uh, Iowa. Uh, and then, of course, Bourdais made his return at Gateway. And again, I think Bourdais did pretty well in that race as well. I think running top 10 most of the day. And again, this was his return to the cockpit. Which is, yeah, that day would really be, you know, not crash and stay in it and yeah. have a good run. So again, we haven't really seen Bourdais at 100% on the short ovals. But you're right. And I was going to bring this up if you didn't. So I'm glad you did. Uh, there have been a lot of red flags coming out of Bourdais' camp. He doesn't seem particularly happy with the Universal Aero Kit, and he hasn't been uh, in pretty much any of the interviews I've seen yeah. with him. Well, so it, not- Bourdais, he's been, you know, optimistic Bourdais, but you can tell that he does. He's not really a big fan of the way the car drives. You know, he's. I think he knows that he's going to have to pull through, and he's going to have to, you know, work hard with this car to get it right. But you can tell that he's definitely. It's not what he prefers. Kind of surprises me because he won a championship with the DPO one in 07, and everybody always says, oh, these cars are like the DPO one So, sure, they may handle a little bit differently, but actually it's a little they're bit surprising. They're me. not as fat as the DPO one Yeah. That. I haven't I haven't heard anyone say it drives like a DPO one. I'm sure oh, it's I was just saying like that that's DW12. what everybody likes to compare the new package to is the old Champ Car DPO ones. Let it me, seems to be the most common. Let me bring up the next team I want to talk about because it's uh I have to because it's Ray Hall Letterman. Oh they have what been fastest. I Red have my mind. 
No, I was going to bring it up it. too. I was literally going to bring it up next. I was going to say, Kyle, you are going to like what I'm well, going to bring up. <laughs> if I say it and I talk about it and I give it to you guys, I'm not biased. So they've been fastest in the Phoenix tests. They've been fastest in the Sebring test. And, you know, I told Chris the other day, Towns, the, uh, going to get in the Marshall Pruitt podcast, Towns and Bell and Marshall said they like to go to the drivers for input on which teams are actually good in their minds and which teams are kind of, you know, they're kind of faking it. They're kind of sandbagging around, and they're not so good and so good. The team that's been brought up as being actually legit good has been Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, which... Oh, that doesn't surprise you, me. You've got two of the most improved drivers over the last two years on that team. Uh, Takuma Sato and Graham Ray Hall have been dynamite, uh, in the last few years. Now, sure, that may come down to a bit of arrow kit advantage or disadvantage or teams having the preferred arrow kit. Certainly, Sato was dynamite with the Andretti. When, as soon as he got in that Andretti car, he was awesome on the ovals. Uh, and, of course, Ray Hall, they Does were I- the first team to really unlock the secrets of the Honda arrow kit. So, But you look at the testing times, like you said, and they look legit. I have to say that looking at, at the Ray Hall team, I do see uh, the hype being real. I really do think that they could be the top dog, even though I do know that Sato and Ray Hall, uh, their setups are not compatible. So it's essentially going to be like two separate uh, cars that just happen to be coming out of the same stable because Sato likes a really solid rear end, and apparently Ray Hall likes the car to be a little uh, looser sprung. So it'll be interesting to see how their setup uh, differs between the two cars, but it certainly looks like the data they're getting from both of those drivers are really paying dividends already. Yeah, and you know you got Eddie Jones moving over to Sato's car, Tom German over to Ray Hall's. You know that those are two matchups that I really like. You know Eddie Jones with a ton of experience. You know an older guy, Sato, forty. You know. <laughs> Ray Hall, Tom German, German coming out of Andretti, obviously a lot of experience there. I think it's it's a good group. You know, of course, Ricardo Nolt still with uh, Graham, and he's always, I may disagree with his strategy a couple times, but he usually pulls through. But uh, it's, I just, it makes me so pumped for St. Pete when you hear Ray Hall is going to be legit. You know, it, ah, as a Ray Hall fan, a I don't want to fanboy too much, but man, man, oh man, I'm pumped. <laughs> awful lot of uh, engineering switches. Uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, most of the uh, people from uh, the two Ganassi teams that were cut last year have moved over to the Carlin uh, organization, which of course is a new one for this year, uh, moving up from Indy Lights and Formula 3 and a few other uh, European feeder series. Uh, you've seen uh, most of the 10 crew from Ganassi last year have moved over to the 14 for AJ Foyt Racing. So that may mean that Foyt actually might be legit this year, not just a flash in the pan at the Phoenix test, though we did see them kind of figure out the short ovals last year. So that may just be a fluke. But you've got a lot of moving parts uh, in terms of where everybody's gone. You look at Schmidt-Peterson, I think they've completely thrown out their old engineering team. They've brought in a bunch of new people, including former Audi uh, engineer Lena Gade, who's obviously a star in her own right. Uh, so you've got all of these new pieces in place, and there's definitely a lot of potential for shakeup in IndyCar. There's no doubt in my mind about that one. You know what trend I've noticed here is that we've – the three teams we've gone over right now, Dale Coyne, Ray Hall, and um, Schmidt-Peterson, are pretty much three teams that five years ago, you say, these guys could be championship contenders. And you say, wait, what? Because <laughs> five years ago, it'd be down to your Andretti's, your Penske's, or your Ganassi's pretty much, the big three. Schmidt-Peterson to me still kind of... Well, I, yeah, I mean, they... They, they don't they, feel... They don't sit right with me. Like, I don't... I don't really look at them lately and think they're gonna do that well like i hinchcliffe showed promise in the beginning last year but i he did he faded a lot if you paid attention he the end of the season through the middle i mean he just he wasn't there and uh adding robert wickens i mean i i expect him to do well but i don't expect him to come out of the box winning races in his first season i mean he i think he's gonna do well but i they don't i don't know they if they start going for wins and 
a championship, that'll surprise me in the next coming years. I just love how they were the team the last few years that always came out with uh, that they uh, added an engineer to, but then stated that continuity was what they were looking for. And then this year they threw everything out and <laughs> went for new. So, uh, yeah, it's they're definitely an interesting bunch to keep an eye on. I think the more interesting bunch would probably be AJ Foyt Racing. Um, I want to move over to them now because, like David said, they showed promise in the Phoenix test. You know, Mateus Lice might have tried to put it in the wall a few times, but I mean, that's learning. Uh, most of the 10 crew goes to the 14 now. Kanan, basically the guy rebuilding that team, uh, quote-unquote rebuilding, he's, I don't know, could they be legit this year? I think. I think so. Uh, I will tell you this. Uh, Mateus Laced, I think, is going to surprise a lot of people. Uh, I ha actually had the opportunity to speak to him in person at Watkins Glen briefly. Uh, and what was interesting was I was uh, congratulating him on his uh, Freedom 100 victory, which I think a lot of people forget he got and yeah. did so in dominating fashion in a race that we usually see decided by not seconds, but inches. I think that speaks volumes as to what the A.J. Foyt racing team looks for in drivers. Suddenly, you've got not only an Indy 500 winning driver there in Tony Kanaan and somebody who the Andretti team used to rely entirely on to set their cars up for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but you've got a young, clearly very exuberant driver on that team who has already won at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So when I spoke to Laced, it was kind of surprising to me because he seemed very confident that he was going to have a ride for next season. I was thinking to myself, where on earth could he go? It seems like all the seats are taken up. But as it turned out, Connor Daly, who looked like he was pretty much set in the Foyt team to stay there, it looked like Munoz was going to be the only odd man out. Uh, it turns out Foyt decided to uh, kick everybody out once again and start anew with Mateus Laced. And again, a lot of people have been saying some bad things about him. A lot of people are poo-pooing him a little bit. I think he's going to surprise you. We could have another Ed Jones on our hands uh, from him because mm -hmm. he's, you know, again, Brazilians in IndyCar. There's another one as well, yeah. in Pietro Fittipaldi. But you look at these Brazilians, they always seem to show up and perform very well, unless their name is Marco Greco, of course, but that's that's another story for another day. I think the the biggest problem I think that AJ Foyt's had in the past couple of years is that they had some great drivers on their lineups. They had Connor Daly, they had yeah. Hawksworth put some good results down. Uh, they had Carlos Munoz last year as well. He's proven time in and time out that he's a pretty good driver. But I think the biggest problem that AJ Foyt has had is that they haven't really had good development drivers on their team. Like they... I don't think that the drivers that they've had recently are good enough at putting out valuable data to the team about yeah. how to set up the cars because See? they're good drivers and they're um, really foot-to-the-floor drivers, but I don't feel like they can give the team as much input as, say, a driver like Tony Kanaan, who has as much experience as he does. I think that the lineup of Tony Kanaan and Mateus Lace, like you said, he's a young gun. He's going to be out there just trying to get as much um, good results out there as he can. And you have a guy like Tony Kanan who's mature and he has experience in the series, a lot of experience in the series. And um, he can hopefully give the team some valuable data. So I think that we'll see A.J. Foyt in a much better position this season than previously. I think Mateus Lace is getting a lot of crap, mainly because he, did, he only did a season in Indy Lights. Did he do a season or half a season? But he only did a season in Indy Lights and didn't win the championship and he got some wins, but I still think a lot of people look at him and think he needs another season in Indy Lights. And I also think a lot of people who are Connor Daly fans didn't like that he took Daly's ride after only one season of Lights. I mean, personally, I don't like that. But I don't think the Mateus Lights will do bad this year. I think he'll do fine, but I still think the pairing of Tony Kanon and Daly would have been much better. Uh, I would rank Mateus Laced higher than Kyle Kaiser. I have never really Honestly. been all that. I've never been all that impressed with him. And I even put almost. I don't want to say this because I kind of like Spiggy, but I never thought a Piggott was particularly all that impressive. I either. You know, he's. You look at a guy like Joseph Newgarden, and you could see him in lights and say, "Wow, that guy's got something." I haven't seen that from guys like Kaiser. So the people who are, you know, saying, "Well, okay, yeah, championships mean everything." 
to really ultimately it only means a check. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're yeah. going to have those skills translate from the lights car to the Indy car. I mean, look at Ed Jones. Uh, he was a championship contender and he finally did end up getting a lights championship, but he spent two years in lights. And again, I think he was one of those guys that showed the flashes of brilliance that translates well to IndyCar. That's why you see guys like, uh, you know, a Sage Karam fizzle out of IndyCar racing because yeah, sure. They may be able to be dominant in lights, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be great in IndyCars. Yeah. Kyle Kaiser. Hey, yeah, he's got that check, but I, I don't know. I don't think he'll last another long one. in IndyCar. Cl- Clayman DeMello is another one. I've never seen he when he Me ran either. Indianapolis the uh, the Freedom One Hundred. He had the most wing cranked into his car I've ever seen. I mean, the thing looked like a road course wing. I, I couldn't believe that. So, I mean, I understand DeMello's there more because he brings a pretty big check, yeah. uh, and he didn't have a bad Sonoma race. I'll give him some good credit there. You look at a guy like Mateus Lace, yeah, he may smash the car up, but hey, you know what? AJ likes a guy that stands on the gas. That's why he kept Sato for so long. He'd rather have a guy that stands on the gas and crashes the car than a guy that rides around in 15th that doesn't crash it. Yeah. There's another thing besides the teams that we've been looking at, take a break on that, but I wanted to ask David, you know, while he's here, we got a lot of rookies this year coming in, you know. My guy Zach Veach, for one. You know, like Kyle Kaiser, Mateus Lace, we've kind of already gone over. Uh, Robert Wickens, uh, who is another one. Rene Bender, he's a part-time guy, but he's he's in there. Pietro Fittipaldi, uh, Zachary Clement Mello, uh, all those guys. I might be missing a couple even because there's, there's just been a lot. But, I mean, how so do you Zach- think these guys will fare? Yeah, I said Zach Beach. He okay. was the first guy I said. Okay. I made sure my boy Zach Beach was the first guy I said. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I will say that Zach Veach is in, an interesting prospect. Uh, I have never been the most impressed with Zach Veach as a driver. I think he's improved a significant amount, and I think a lot of that has to do with the amount of time he spent in Indy Lights. He didn't rush up to IndyCar racing, and I think that's part of the re- part of the reason is because he never ended up winning that championship. Uh, but I think that will help him in the long run. The more experience you can get at those lower levels, the more mistakes you can make at those lower levels, the better you'll be once you get up to IndyCar racing. I'll also tell you that, again, keeping with the Brazilian theme, I'm really interested in seeing Pietro Fittipaldi. Obviously, he's got the bloodline, the lineage, the heritage uh, of of being the grandson of Emerson Fittipaldi, the nephew of Christian Fittipaldi, two uh, pretty stellar IndyCar records there. I think he's the Formula Renault uh, 3.5 champion. So he clearly is fast in open-wheel cars. He looked like he took to the ovals like a duck to water at Phoenix. Uh, He seemed to be right on pace with with, uh, Bourdais, who's significantly more experienced. Uh, I, I think Pietro Fittipaldi could surprise some people. Uh, that That's one I'm interested in seeing where it goes, particularly at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, because uh, his uncle, uh, Christian Fittipaldi, ran one race at the Indianapolis 500, and it was a second place. And, of course, Emo, Emo his uh, grandpa, has two wins. So it's, it's one of those things where I wonder if that bloodline is going to – produce some interesting results I, I really am interested in seeing pietro all right i mean it's 12 30 a.m on the dot uh what do you say we end this whole thing up with some predictions because uh well i feel like we've gone over quite a bit of indycar and i feel like if we keep talking for more and more time we're just going to end up losing people if there's even people who made it this far in but anyway um <laughs> how about we just set it up in this simple format um one championship a uh, winner possibility, a prediction that's realistic, and one that's a wild card. So I'll let Kyle start first. Uh, I put you on the spot. Yes. Uh, do I be biased? Do I? <laughs> oh, if I say Graham Rahal champion, just shoot your like, shot, oh. man. I'm not going to call anything on this one. Uh, well, I, mean, I say it every year. So Graham Rahal's your champion. Um, winner of St. Pete. Oh my god. This season's so unpredictable with the new body kit. You don't know who's gonna get it right out of the gate at St. Pete. Yeah, but you didn't listen to my directions. I said pick a championship winner and a championship wild card. And you're talking about St. Pete. You said winner. You said St. Pete winner. No, I didn't. Nowhere in there did I say St. Pete winner. 
I want people to rewind for 45 seconds and find out where I said St. Pete winner. Anyway, I didn't. You hear a bunch of crap. All right. Um, you're going to listen to this and you're going to see, right oh, off. shit, I was wrong. Wild, <laughs> wild card. You really did put me on the spot, god damn it. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to draw from a hat, a very um, uh, fake hat. Let's just say um, Rossi. Mm. Yeah, that's actually a good one. That was actually a very good guess. Yeah, took mine because I don't think he's gonna win the championship second year, but by God, he has a chance. Well, third year, but still. <laughs> anyway, David Land, what would you say for a uh, realistic championship prediction and then wild card? Of realism, I think you have to look at Scott Dixon. Uh, you look Go at figure. that Honda power plant. Well, I mean, uh, who else are you going to pick? I mean, he's the winningest active driver by a long margin. He, well, not really a long margin because of Bourdais, but he's still – he's got a championship. He's got experience. He knows how to develop a new car because of the fact that he was a kart driver and there aren't a whole lot of those guys left who had to develop a car every single year. That's right in Scott Dixon's wheelhouse. For a – Dark horse. Unfortunately, Kyle picked both of my dark horses as uh, as his number one and his dark horse. I was going to say Ray Hall or Rossi. He's picked both of them. So I have to look at a dark horse. Man, oh man, for the championship, I have to still go with Rossi. I think I think if somebody's going to get it done, it's going to be Rossi. It's going to be interesting to see how he adapts to this new aero kit. Uh, if he adapts well, I think you're going to see a very, very, very strong and very confident Alexander Rossi. But I am a bit worried if Andretti misses the setup like a lot of times they seem to do, especially when things change, uh, we may not see a whole lot of Rossi. It'll be it'll be interesting to see. Well, unfortunately, I'm not going to have a lot of excitement in my picks here because uh, my um, realistic pick is Scott Dixon, basically for all the reasons that you listed the Honda engine, which, like he's, or he himself said, um, looks like it'll be the uh, better engine power unit to have this year. We'll see. Um, but he's like... Power um, unit. Yeah. Well, not power unit. It's not F1. So, engine. Okay, unit. relax. So you both picked Dixon in the end of the year when there's a number 15 Honda that's the champion. I'm gonna sit back here and say, "Oh my God, you guys were wrong." Of course, you not. picked him as the, him the your official pick. So I was like, "Well, I can't pick." Oh, right, by a chance, who is your Indy 500 pick to win? Well, is it Ray uh, Hall? Yeah. <laughs> because who is your pick to win Iowa? <laughs> it's am I sensing always Ray Hall, dude? Am I sensing a trend? It's always Ray anyway. Hall. That's always whenever a pick is Ray Hall. Anyway, like, it's it's more fun to watch the race that way. <laughs> yeah. Can I go back to uh, course, like some weekends? There'll be some weekends. Where Eddie Lazier like, oh. will win every race this year. Absolutely, go. he's gonna Penske's like. gonna pull out a surprise entry next week. Buddy Lazier, sponsored by Totino's or whatever. I, the I shit. would, I would die of a heart attack if Buddy Lazier got a Penske. Quiznos, ride. whatever it was. I would. Die. Well, you see, in 2014, <laughs> when 2014 man. on back, I haven't done that. But 2015 on, when Ray Hall has a chance to win, by God, that man has a chance to win every freaking race. Go back and watch. That man has a chance. Maybe not Phoenix. Even Phoenix in 2016 when I rooted for him, he finished fifth. So, it I don't know. It's just fun to watch it that way. All right. That, well, sure. Yeah. All right. Well, Dixon, like I said, realistic championship pick. Um, yeah. It's going to be pretty I, I mean, there's not, there's not too much card. to say. Well, yeah, that'd be funny. I'd appreciate that. But, uh, I, I mean, there's not too much to say because David already covered all of it. Um as much as much as I'd like to say for like a a dark horse pick, as fun as it would be to say Bourdais, I honestly don't see that being a chance of happening. Um, so I'm gonna have to go with uh, an Andretti driver as well, but a different one. Uh, and no, it's not Marco. Do not. Uh, Hunter Ray. Yeah, <laughs> you, got, ah! you got it. <laughs> oh man, because I, I mean Hunter Ray. Tell David during his Hunter Ray, but Hunter yeah. Ray is the uh, well, he's the 2012 champion. He's put on some good performances around pretty much all the tracks, primarily speedways. But um, he's proven that he can get some road course results down. I don't know. Hunter I mean, I think you brought up a good point that Andretti might not get the setup down because they have been lacking ever since 2015. Pretty much, they've been. Just th there's been races where they could have had way better results, but they just couldn't get the setup down all across all their drivers. Um, 
So yeah, I, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how they manage the new package, but if they can get it down and, uh, you know, um, get some results on the table, I see no reason at all why Hunter A couldn't be up there at the end contending for a championship. Uh, I, I'd like to pick a Penske driver as well, but you just... It's too easy. Know. Yeah, it is too <laughs> easy, first of all, but also you don't know... And also, I was talking more there for like a primary pick. You don't know how well they're going to do with the uh, new package. So, I don't know. Time will tell. Anyway, first race is a week this from week. when we're recording. Well, because it's a Sunday now. So, Sunday, whatever the date will be, the 11th, March 11th, 12.30 p.m. Eastern on ABC. Have fun listening to Eddie Cheever and... Oh, I couldn't believe they hired them back. I was like, you fired them, <laughs> just brought them back. You gave us all this hope that they might just bring in the NBC crew, but nope. Get ready to listen to some here. White Jacker stuff. White Can we Jacker. just do an Eddie Cheever impression? Well, now this podcast is over. Uh, did you know the Indy 500 is in May? Uh, it will be in May, and these guys are just they are readying themselves during this podcast to get ready for the Indy 500 months. Let me tell you, Eddie. What looking at. Let, let me tell you, Eddie. They got these tools in the car, and one of those <laughs> things is the weight checker, and they've also got that push-to-pass button, and it's like a credit card. You go down to the local store, <laughs> you your, use your little uh, credit card to pay for that push-to-pass, and, and you get some Tim Hortons coffee, but that Tim Hortons coffee will burn you if you use it too quickly. And then, and then Alan Bestwick jumps in and actually says something meaningful. <laughs> 22-car pileup, uh, Scott, but thank you so much for that report on the <laughs> Anyway, I think i got to end it before it gets out of hand. Uh, anyway, episode four, in the bag. Uh, see, I'm trying to think because I don't think we're going to have enough time to film the next episode before the first race because I have work next week after the IndyCar race. So I don't think. It's going to happen, but no guarantees. If not, um, I guess see you in two weeks for a recap of everything that's been going on in the world of IndyCar. Anyway, episode four of Rain Race. It's all over. I'm out. Peace.